Welcome to Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden. On this episode, Nature Revisited is pleased to be airing my conversation with Jackson Newman, A Year on the Slough, during the Aldo Leopold Foundation's celebration, Aldo Leopold Week. We will be talking with Jackson about conservation and how it is changing and the role that it plays. But first, a word from the Aldo Leopold Foundation. The Aldo Leopold Foundation is proud to be sponsoring this episode of Nature Revisited. The Aldo Leopold Foundation works year-round to foster a land ethic in the fabric of society. By showcasing projects like the one you'll hear about today, and by facilitating conversations about a modern land ethic. Join us for Leopold Week this year, March 3rd through 12th, to explore reciprocity in nature with an inspiring week-long speaker series featuring a program on reciprocity with Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass, a conversation with Delia Owens, author of Where the Crawdads Sing, an exploration into earth ethics with Scott Russell Sanders, thoughts on creating an inclusive outdoors with James Edward Mills, poetry from Kim Blazer, and reflections on living a land ethic with the Foundation's own Future Leader Fellows. These Leopold Week programs are sure to nurture your connection to nature and the conservation community. They are free and online. Learn more and register today at www.aldoleopold.org. The Aldo Leopold Foundation is pleased to be sponsoring this episode of Nature Revisited. Please enjoy the episode with Jackson Newman, former Education and Communication Fellow at the Aldo Leopold Foundation. I am joined by Jackson Newman, whom I first met when Nature Revisited was doing an episode featuring the Aldo Leopold Foundation. Our conversation today will center around two articles that Jackson wrote while he was at the Foundation. The first, the backwash to the river progress, and the second, the guiding virtues of the land ethic. Jackson spent a year focusing on an area at the Foundation which the Leopolds called the Slough. Welcome, Jackson. Can we start by giving our listeners a bit of your history at the Foundation and what led you to write the articles? Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Stefan. So I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, which is right outside Washington, D.C. And honestly, growing up, conservation or nature or environmentalism wasn't really a big part of my life. I think that the Leopold quote, there's two spiritual dangers in not owning a farm. One is that you think the food comes from the grocery. The second is that you think heat comes from the furnace. And that was me. I just didn't really have this 
an awareness of the land around me and the ecosystem that I was a part of. I cared about conservation or environmentalism in the abstract, but that's exactly what it was, abstract. I cared about it because people told me it was the right thing to do, not because it was something that I felt. So went to college in St. Louis, studied political science and history, graduated into the pandemic, and I didn't know what to do. So I started working for a little sailing company in Maryland, and I was I was mainly cleaning and fixing boats. I had a great boss who's become a, a really close friend and mentor. He did a lot of conservation communications work, and so he started bringing me on. I, I just, I fell in love with the storytelling aspect of, of conservation in the land. I read a Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold. I felt like all the things that I'd been thinking and feeling were put down on paper in a way that was way more thoughtful and beautiful than I ever could. When I read it, I felt like I had to go to where this book was about, and I had to learn more, and I had to be close to that legacy. So I literally Googled the Aldo Leopold Foundation, clicked on their front page, and it turns out that they were hiring fellows for the next year. So you applied to the foundation, and they they accepted you. So what inspired you to look at Aldo Leopold's ideas on the land ethic through a new lens? How did this project come about, and why did you choose the SLU for your inquiry into the land ethic? This is an answer with a couple different parts. The first part, why look at the land ethic through a new lens, I really think was the product of conversations that, that I've been having. The most important part of Leopold's land ethic, of that essay in the San County Almanac, is the phrase, a thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. It is wrong when it tends otherwise. And so that sounds great. But it's really hard to live by that on a, on a day-to-day basis. It's really hard to apply that to the decisions or the relationships we have with people in the land. I would give tours of the shack, and people would sometimes tell me things that they were inspired to do by Leopold. But at least from my perspective, I didn't always feel like that maybe Leopold would have agreed with some of those actions. So like an example would be that very nice gentleman told me that he had started a deer nutrition company in Wisconsin to grow bigger bucks and that he was inspired by Leopold to do that. Well, I felt like I read a different Leopold. So I think Leopold can be really hard for people to understand. And we need new ways of telling stories and connecting people to Leopold. Why I chose the clue I didn't know what a slew was before I went to the Leopold Foundation. A slew is like a, a backwater. Basically, it's almost a swampy body of water that's usually backfilled by a larger body of water. It's just this buggy, swampy, smelly <laughs> little piece of land, only like 200 yards from the shack. And I think it's it's something that for the longest time, conservation movement, or at least the aesthetics of the conservation movement has ignored. We always think of tall mountains, big waterfalls, deep canyons as that's nature, but nature isn't a buggy little swamp 
or nature isn't necessarily my garden or the abandoned lot next door. So I wanted to focus on a piece of land that didn't fit our traditional conception of what beauty was. So one of the results of that year in the SLU was that you wrote the article, The Guiding Virtues of the Land Ethic, in which you say it is an attempt to make our land ethic tangible in the modern day. Again, it's hard to, to be faced with an ethical question and think, well, does this tend to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community? That's really hard to apply. So how, how do I make that the land ethic more than this abstract, beautifully written, but sometimes difficult or complex to understand thing that's in a book? How do I bring that into my life every day? The, the way that I ended up doing this. And, and when I say I, there were so many people that helped me and helped guide me to, to this idea. You know, you could call them character traits or personality traits, things that I can wake up and say, am I being this thing? So that, that was sort of the idea of how to translate the land ethic into something that is tangible in the modern day or in my everyday life. In your article, you talk of five virtues that you feel are important as we move forward. Of course, there are more than five. Let's touch on the five that you talk about in your article. I think it's important also to recognize that these are just five virtues. I think that you could have an almost inexhaustible list of virtues that make up the land ethics. This isn't meant to be every single one. This is more like a starting point or a place where people can ask, okay, here are some ideas. What are the virtues that make up my land ethic and how do I live them? First is resilience. I think that for the listeners of this podcast, this is probably evident, but it's easy to look around and feel depressed about the state of ecosystems we're a part of in the world today. Leopold was as aware of this as, as we are. He wrote that one of the penalties of an ecological education is living alone in the world of wounds. So I think a lot of us live alone in this world of wounds. We look around and we see, we see the invasive plants or we see the erosion or we see all these impermeable surfaces. It can be really hard. So resilience is really about understanding the reality of the situation, but still sincerely pursuing conservation or a connection to the land. The example I talked about is when the Leopold family showed up at the shack for the first time. The shack was just this sandy dust bowl of a farm that was a wasteland to other people. And that didn't stop them from giving it all the care and love and attention that it deserves, that that every piece of land deserves. Resilience, understanding the reality of our situation, but still still striving forward. Cooperative. I think that conservation is doomed for failure if we don't cooperate. I mean, an easy example, say you restored a prairie in Wisconsin on your piece of land, and then the guy next door feeds his land to Reed Canary, all that great work you did in establishing that prairie on your land 
is is going to fail. <laughs> we can't live in these vacuums or in isolation and think that we're going to be successful. We've got to work with other people. We've got to create coalitions. We've got to cooperate. The land cooperates. We got to cooperate too. Humble. Humble is again a sort of a sort of obvious one, but I think the more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. And I think that's so true of the land. I mean, we are just a small part in an incredibly complex and diverse system. And we have to be humble and understand that. I, the example that I use in the article is talking about fires. Indigenous people in, in North America have been, been using fire as an ecological tool for thousands of years, and the land adapted to that. The tall grass prairies of central Wisconsin are evolved with the presence of fire. Then Europeans come and all of a sudden there's no fire on the land and fire is bad and fire is the enemy. That that arrogance to think that we knew better than people who had thousands of years of traditional ecological knowledge to live the land ethic, we have to have humility and understand that there, there's a whole infinitely complex ecosystem and we have to take care when we do things that we don't overstep our bounds. Which leads into the next one, which is intentional. If we don't plan ahead and, and take intentional steps and we're just doing things off of impulse or with, without a plan, I hate to say it negatively, but conservation as a, as a movement is going to fail. You can't predict everything, but having a plan and the ability to evaluate and reevaluate and make decisions based off of observations and data, I think is really important to what we're doing. If I make a decision on a day-to-day -day basis, I need to apply that intentionality to those decisions. And then lastly, which I think is one of the most important, is justice. Justice, I think, is at the root of all of these other virtues that I talk about in the article. I think it really answers why we steward the land. I think Leopold innately understood that the consequences of the decisions of the quote unquote powerful often rest on the shoulders of the powerless. So I think that's true both in what we think about in human terms, in our economies and our conflicts, but also in terms of the land. And we can't have a limited definition of justice. Justice has to extend to the ecological community as well. So in my mind, seeding a prairie for pollinators and wildflowers, which also improves air and water quality, that's justice. Controlling invasives for biodiversity, that's justice. Pursuing the health and wellness for all is justice. So as you and I have discussed many times, the land ethic is ultimately a matter of having a personal relationship with the land. How did your year, focusing on the slough, change your personal relationship with the land? The slough changed my relationship to the land first in, in the understanding that like, you have to be present in a place to, to connect with it. Like The first step towards connecting or loving a place, I think, is observation. Observation can come in many forms. It doesn't have to be a passive watching of the land. I spent a lot of time down there 
with my camera, with a notebook, watching the seasons change, observing all the organisms that call the slough its home. And, and I just, I don't know any other way to put it, but I just began to make friends with the characters of this land. So like a tree became this, this dead red cedar tree became a character or a friend. The sandhill cranes flying over, they became a friend or a blanding turtle that I watched the sunset with. These all became characters in my life. And I think that that's how you begin to know a place and become connected to it because you begin to care about the things that are a part of it. So if someone came blue and, and wanted to cut down that dead red cedar tree, now I'd be pretty upset about it. So on the other article, the backlash of the river progress, what is progress and why does it matter? And do you see a need for a new definition of progress? I completely see a need for a new definition of progress. I think that we take the definition of progress for granted and we don't really realize that progress is a man-made measuring stick. We ultimately define what progress is. So when you look around now, I think progress is material wealth. It's more things. It's bigger, better, more technology. It's efficiency. It's comfort. But I think that we can redefine what progress is because I think that our traditional definition of progress is leading us down the wrong path. So we can change what the definition of progress is. We don't have to be stuck to the same narratives that have gotten us into our current predicament. And I think the Leopolds are a great example of redefining progress. Progress became defined by humility, became defined by justice. It, it became defined by loving the land. It's this humble little shack. They didn't need a lot. They just needed the land and each other. How does language and culture hold us back when it comes to our relationship with the land? I think there's a great discussion or dialogue that has been going on for decades, if not centuries, about how our language holds us back. One thing that I tried to focus on in this article is the visuals. Aesthetically, the conservation movement has leaned on sort of what I view as some unstable foundations. The American conservation ethics sort of started with, and I should note that one of the people that mentored me on this project, a photographer named Edgar Cardenas, really explores these ideas in great depth. It was built on painting of the American West that really prized the sublime. And the sublime is this idea that nature is something separate from us. It's, it's a place we go visit. It's these huge mountains and, and rivers. It's not something that we're necessarily a part of. If you go on social media and you look up nature photography or, or nature storytelling, and most of what you'll see is that classic aesthetic. Godfather of nature photography is Ansel Adams. He did great work, but a lot of his work, again, is this inaccessible landscape. I think all of this makes us think that nature is somewhere we go visit. It's not where we live. I think that's a huge barrier because we need conservation everywhere. So do you see a generational shift? Do you see that 
changing? I don't know, and I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer that yeah. because I think there's lots and lots of people in my generation connected to the land in so many ways. I think it goes back to the purpose of why I wanted to write these articles or explore these ideas is that we need new stories and we need new ways of connecting to younger generations. You know, Leopold, I love the San County Almanac. It obviously changed the course of my life, but I don't think that a lot of people my age have the same reaction to it for a variety of reasons. It's just not the type of media that we consume really these days. I think in the conservation movement, and of course I'm speaking super broadly, but we shy away from this idea that we need to sell a vision. And it's it's sort of unfortunate because we've had, at least speaking for people my age, we've had a vision sold to us. And that vision is that you work, you make lots of money, you buy all the things that you want, and we need an alternative because we're not going to just out-technology our way out of the problems that we face. We need to have like a transformational spiritual change in our relationship to the land that determines our consumption and how we live in relationship to one another. I want there to be a positive vision of conservation and alternatives to the things that I feel like are being sold to us and an alternative that's not apocalyptic, not the world ending because of climate change, that, that there's another option. Yeah, work, working in conservation, and I'm sure like doing your podcast, you tend to self-select, end up being around a lot of people that share similar views. So of course, to some degree, you're in, uh, you can get into a bit of an echo chamber. So how long were you at the foundation and what are you doing now? I was at the foundation for 16 months. I did a year-long fellowship in education and communications and had a tremendous experience. And then I spent about four months working with Kurt Miney, who you've, you've had on, on some research on agricultural conservation. Three months ago, I left and moved to Montana. I worked for nonprofit here as a community organizer in the agriculture and conservation realm. So how do you hope to use what you learned at the foundation in the future? I've started a new project that I've been reaching out to friends, family, teachers, mentors, and just asking the simple question, where is a place that you feel connected to the land? Or when is the time that you felt connected to the land? People have been sending me these paragraphs and a picture, and I turned the picture into a National Parks poster with sort of the idea that something doesn't have to be a national park to be as important, that these places where people are connected to the land are as important as a national park. My takeaway from this project is that people are so talented at writing and telling stories they just don't get asked to do it. Like they just don't have the chance to do it in their day-to-day -day lives, to be creative, to write about something that's important to them. If there's any listeners out there, I'd love to learn about the places that are special to everyone else. It's always really moving. I think the biggest thing is just the importance of storytelling and of strong narratives. It's something that I want to bring into my work. I think it's the only way that we're going 
to, to grow the conservation movement and bring people in is through good stories. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jackson Newman. And if you would like to read the articles we talked about, please visit aldoleopold.org. If you would like to join in the celebration of Aldo Leopold Week, also visit aldoleopold.org. And please share Nature Revisited with friends, family, and colleagues. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or at our website, nordenproductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, productions.com. The music for this episode is performed by Martin Decato. You can learn more about him and his music at DecatoSanbornMusic.com. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature. Nature.